In 2017, my parents celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. I made a conscious decision not to acknowledge it at all. I do not approve of my parents' marriage. Even now, being around them takes a toll on me. After I see them, it usually takes me a week or two to recover. Growing up, to put it mildly, there was a lot of conflict. They were always at odds. They never agreed on anything. They argue a lot. They've always argued a lot. They've been subverting each other since July 1st, 1967. You know, the raised voices and the slammed cupboards and the stomping feet, it, it scared me. It took a toll on me. Sometimes I see parents arguing in restaurants or in a shopping mall, and I know that's just the tip of the iceberg. If they're arguing in public like this, it must be much worse at home. I look at the kid's face as the parents argue, and I think, oh, buddy, don't worry. Therapy's not so bad. Even when I was young, divorced kids always seemed so cool to me. They had independent streaks. They had two parents who lived in separate houses, which means they had two bedrooms. Um, you know, I had to share a room with my brother in a tiny house. Divorced kids always seemed like they were doing fun things. They were, they were going to the movies. They, you know, they were going to like amusement parks. And they had these parents who were trying really hard separately to distinguish themselves as the superior parent. And I, I always wanted that. How could I not want that? Well, on today's show, we're going to meet a man named Shane whose parents divorced when he was very young. And we're going to talk about the video game that made it okay for him and his parents to be in the same room together again. If you're a fan of classic Konami games, you're not gonna wanna miss this episode, which starts now. Welcome to Heavily Pixelated, a show that attempts to describe all the positive things that games do for us. I'm Scott C. Jones. When my parents split up when I was really young, and I've never really remembered them together at any point. This is Shane. Shane Lewis. I think... How old were you? Ah, boy. To be honest, I was so young, I, don't, I actually don't remember. Um, I, it, was, it was at least at a point where my early memories are of being in a house separated. I used to live with my mom, so my earliest memories are living with my mom and not living with my mom and my dad. So as far as I was aware, this was how, you know, a it childhood was. was. Yeah, already. yeah, it was done. Shane lives in a small town just outside of Toronto. When they first broke up, and I don't remember any of this happening, first memory is, is kind of weird. It's like almost being in a police car type of situation where I remember going from some place to someplace else. So I don't know exactly what happened there, and my parents have never really told me the exact story of all that stuff. Though I do know why they broke up now. At the time, it was just something that was just a very confusing mix of images. When they broke up, the only moments I ever remembered my parents ever being in the same room was when we were playing the NES. Why did the marriage end? Is that something you can tell me about? Uh, the marriage was, um... This is Shane's dad. I think I didn't really pay much attention to her. Yeah, she felt that too, and I didn't pay attention to her, and then she went out to a club with one of my sister-in-law, and then she met somebody, and uh, they're still together today, so... Okay. Really... I took it a little hard at first. 
but mm-hmm. but then uh, things got better and like we're super good friends now. I was concerned because I thought, what is what is he going to like in life? You want him to find a focus and get into something. This is Shane's mom. I knew you weren't interested in cars. He was the one. A lot of the boys were interested. They knew their cars. You didn't care about cars. You didn't care about engines, sports. Yeah, people would talk about sports. The kids had focuses like that. He didn't seem to have a focus. But the one thing you always stayed focused on was that computer. Shane had trouble in school, and he was diagnosed with ADD when he was a kid, which is why his mom refers to Shane's focus or lack of focus so much. You bought me um, the magazines at the store, like Next Generation. Well, that was your thing, yeah. So, like, some kids would buy the teen magazines or whatever, but Shane, everything was game-related. So that's what he liked, and you read them, and reading is a learn, focusing, even even when I was uh, speaking to the doctors and stuff they would just say well if you can find a focus and they're learning from everything they do right so the way you were quick at at playing the game and and then with the computer you you learn to read from the computer and do stuff with the computer you wouldn't read a you would read your magazines if they were game related but but you would read instructions and you would put things together you got really good with the computer My parents are both Portuguese, yep. and a lot of the people that live on the street, or at least when I was growing up here, were also Portuguese. So it was this very European-centric neighborhood. Um, that's the house I grew up in. Right there? Uh, this one right here, 124 okay. Thunderbird. So this alleyway was always where you do the drop-off and the pickup? Every single time, yeah. The parental exchange of Shane was always a little tricky, especially in the early days, right after the separation and the divorce. So Shane's parents settled on an alleyway in Cambridge where Shane grew up. The alleyway was neutral territory. His mother would drop him off at one end, Shane would walk the length of the alleyway, and his father would be waiting for him on the other end. I'd always just be paying attention to everything else because I always felt my parents didn't want to talk to each other. So there was this gap where they had to let me travel. For me, it's it's this horrible memory where my mom would drive me to the alleyway and then I'd get out of the car and then I'd walk across this lonely, gross alleyway to the other end and my dad would be on the other end. So for me, it was like this exchange of worlds. I was going from one location to another and I wouldn't see the other world until that I was done with my dad and go back. During this unstable time, the one element of consistency for Shane, the one thing he could rely on, was a 1988 NES game called Jackal. We used to play Jackal. I know all the music, all the cutscenes. I loved every single secret. I loved finding things and exploring things. In 1988, Nintendo released a game called Jackal. The game itself is a run-and-gun style, top-down shooter. You drive your Jeep through a hostile military zone. Your mission is to rescue POWs from the surrounding bunkers. And you do that by lobbing explosives at the buildings and opening a hole in the side of the buildings and then parking your Jeep next to the building. The prisoners will file out and pile into your Jeep. The desert is filled with tiny little pixelated soldiers that fire bullets at you, presumably bullets. They're just white dots, single pixels. 
The Jeep looks like it can fit maybe four passengers, but when these guys get into your Jeep, five, 10, maybe 15 somehow fit in there, it doesn't really make any sense. Some of the game's bosses are genuinely surreal, like the oversized statue heads that shoot missiles. When my dad would leave, my mom would play Jackal with me co-op, and when my dad would come over, he would be playing Jackal with me co-op. So Jackal is this really strange game that kind of makes me feel like my parents were actually together at one point, because that experience of that game, the second player is always one of my parents in my head. I was always the green character, and my mom was always the orange character, and my dad was always the orange character. Two colors of the Jeeps, and that's exactly how it was every single time. The way I played this game with my parents was that they would always let me collect the soldiers. All the time. But when I got to play this game with my family members and my friends outside of my parents, it was, no, 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 those are my soldiers. I'm collecting them. It always felt better to play with my parents than it ever did with anyone else. I think more of Jackal like this, this one point in time that bridges my parents together so that I can understand that they are my parents. And that's something that no other game will ever do for me. Do you remember tense moments? I do. I remember earlier on there was this this resentment for the for the separation from happening because uh, I feel it was largely more on one side than the other. I think built up for quite a few years where you know one parent would say something to the other like oh, they're so stupid or something like that, and and you'd hear it as a kid and you're just like, did did you just call them stupid? I imagine you got Jackal on sale somewhere. Like those I think I did, I must have, because I was always trying to be conscious of money and stuff, so I think I did. But this game isn't bad. There's a couple ones in the collection we had that were bad, but this game was it very, was challenging, very good. yeah. yeah. I know some of the games that you played, I thought they were boring, and I, I thought they were kind of stupid, <laughs> but you liked them, but that one... Why did you buy them if you thought that? <laughs> well, I, when I was buying them, they were on sale. I didn't, didn't know what they would be like, right? There was a moment there where we couldn't afford the most expensive video games, so my mom would always get these really bad video games. I mean, she didn't know, right? But she was like, Shane likes Back to the Future, Back to the Future on the NES, <laughs> right? Oh Back to the Future for the NES was released in 1989, and Bob Gale, who was the screenwriter for the films, called it one of the worst games ever. But Shane's mom, like all parents who try to buy games for their kids, didn't know this. And Shane himself didn't know this. So Shane, being a kid, made the best of it. He just kept playing. As a result, Shane finished a lot of crappy games and he learned to appreciate a lot of crappy games. Was one of them better than the other at playing cooperatively with you? Interchangeable. Both of my parents were about as good at the game as, as, as each other which was really weird because you would expect, well, your dad's gonna be better at this. It was just this mentality, oh, your dad's better at sports and your mom's better at cooking or something like that when you're a kid. But yeah, that, that didn't happen. My, my dad and my mom essentially played the game exactly the same way. If anything, my mom was far better at playing games like Pac-Man than I was. But when it came to uh, Jackal, they were both kind of on the same level with that game. There's a point in Jackal where there's these little characters that you get that give you power-ups. Instead of them collecting the power-ups, they would let me collect the power-ups. 
all the time. That made me feel like I was being helped while I was playing the game. They're nurturing you along the path of the game. They were being supportive of me playing the game. I think the older I got, the better I got at playing that, and I was able to show my dad and I was like, look at this, I can, I can get through this pretty quick now. I'm actually pretty good. You know what? I think I could do this on my own. And being able to do that made me feel like I was becoming an adult. When's the last time you played a game? Um, well, any one of these games, probably about 20, what, 20, 28 years ago. Do you want to play a Pac-Man a little bit, Mom, to get one I got Shane and his mother together to play Jackal again after all these years. But I'm not sure how I'm going to do this because I totally forget the game. All right, I got you. We're playing two players? Yes. So who am I? Uh, you are the orange one. Well, just wait till it stops by. There you go. You're the orange one. So uh, uh, one button is the grenade and the other button is the... Machine gun. Am I supposed to shoot this guy, right? Yep. What I liked about this game so much was that there's no time limit. Or in a lot of other games, there was a time limit, or if there was a time, or wasn't a time limit, you would have to basically uh, complete a, a stage as quick as you can because everything was trying to kill you. But a game like this, you could just sit here and wait, nothing will happen. And I always liked that. But I think the joystick was easier to handle. It was. Well, for you. The directional pad on the I, NES has not changed mom's preferred uh, way to play video so games. She wants joysticks. a joystick. So you would have to use that. Yeah, I don't remember being able to play two people at once. I'm getting killed all the time now. You're going to get me back into this. I'm going to get addicted. <laughs> yeah, so collect the guys. Yeah, they want to be rescued. Yeah. Oh. This is oh, going to sound okay. a little bananas, but I feel it, so I'm just going to say it. There is nothing sweeter than the sight of a mother and a son time, playing a video game together. There was uh, the one, I forget, where they steal cars or whatever, and then I did never buy you those games because I was I was very confused about what I wanted to do in life, and my my dad is a little bit more bohemian, and my mom is more textbooks. My mom's a dental assistant. My dad was in construction and carpentry, so the the two of them live very different lifestyles. And my dad was never very tech-minded, but he did get a computer, and he kind of learned his way through that, and taught me how to use DOS and all that stuff. But when it came to uh, essentially the way he would he would uh, do work, it was just my mom. Uh, I have to figure all this stuff out. But my mom was. I read a book that taught me how to do all this stuff. My mom basically is one of the key reasons why I play video games. When she was younger, before I was born, she would play Pac-Man all the time. She was such a big fan of Pac-Man that she got an NES at home with a, a copy of Pac-Man, uh, the Tengen Black Cart. And my mom. She, she isn't very tech-savvy to this day. At the time, that was like, you know, my idol. My, my idol, yeah, this is, the, this is the person that knows how to get this TV to work. When you were a kid, what was your dream about what you wanted to be? If you ask my mom, uh, she told me that my biggest dream at the time was to be the guy at the movie theater that ripped the tickets. 
because I thought you got to see the movies for free. Then I was like, but what if you made the movies? I knew that I wanted to be a video game creator at one point as well. I was reading this magazine called Next Generation. It was my ultimate favorite magazine to read. When I was younger, my dad would take me to the corner store to pick up a, a magazine to read uh, for the weekend. And I'd always get Next Generation because it had a CD. And we just got a brand new computer. It had a CD-ROM and I was so excited. And I would take the CD and I would just watch the CD and be like, all right, cool. Magazine goes to the side. But then when I got, uh, I'd say a couple of months after doing that, my dad was like, hey, you gotta read the magazines. So I started reading them. A lot of my friends were reading GamePro, but Next Generation taught me about the industry because it essentially was an industry rag. It was interviews with David Perry and interviews with the, the guys that started Westwood and all these amazing people that were literally on the forefront of, of the game industry. When I started reading those magazines, it gave me this huge desire to be a, uh, a game developer and, and make games. But that didn't happen because you had to be good at math. At least that's what I thought at the time. You need to know how to code. And I tried coding and I was never good at it. So filmmaking was like, well, I can take those really neat narrative experiences I've seen in movies and I can, tr I can do that. I know I can capture the image. One afternoon last winter, Shane took me to see the most important piece of geography from his childhood. Yeah, so, well, that great the alleyway. Uh, but yeah, that's the this alleyway. Is it? Yeah. Do, do you want to get out and walk it? Absolutely. The alleyway uh, is pretty clean, cleaner than I expected it to be. But there's, you know, some trash so that blows around our feet as, as we walk. It's Ontario in winter, so it's brutally cold. And a lot longer. I remember there being a tree that had like these little seeds. Tell me, like, what would be the last thing your mom would always say to you before you get out? I usually like have a good weekend yeah. or have have a fun time with your dad, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, this. <laughs> It, it feels a lot There's a brief moment when Shane suddenly seems to regress a little bit. He looks like a little kid again. It's impossible for me not to picture this guy 20 years ago walking this stretch of sidewalk by himself, his mother on one side, his father on the other. And again and again, he's carrying his copy of Jackal, this 1988 NES game. Like any child of divorced parents, Shane knew how to work the angles with his father. One time he came over, he didn't say anything about buying a game or anything, but he made me breakfast. <laughs> Are you still young, very young. He made me breakfast and then after we're having breakfast, he goes, Dad, I think there's this new game. You know, I go, yeah, I know, I got you already. That new game was Metal Gear Solid. Fernando had a problem with, with Shane because he always wanted to just be in computers, just yeah. be in computers and everything. And she take the computer away from him, go to the mall, hang around at the mall, right? <laughs> That's no good for him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and now I think I think when she, he first brought some money home from his art, <laughs> yeah, she couldn't believe it. I watched Shane play. I, I don't have no problem sitting there watching him play, but <laughs> I can't. I you know sometimes he goes play at that. I said nah, no. 
My dad and I went out and we went to Future Shop and we we bought the game. The game Shane's referring to is Metal Gear. I was shocked to see the game because I'd never seen a double disc pack before. Wait, the game's on two discs? How's that gonna happen? It was the first time I realized that Metal Gear saw that there was people on the other end that were making these. It wasn't a machine, it wasn't this group of, of, of computer scientists coming together to make a game. It was real people. Metal Gear Solid is the only game I can think of off the top of my head that begins with the actors' names in the opening credits. Metal Gear Solid presented itself like it was a legit movie. And Shane's dad sat on the couch behind Shane and watched him play as if he was watching a movie. The characters felt real. There, there was so little animation in the original game. There wasn't even moving mouths. There was PC games at the time that were pretty wild and pretty big, but none of them were, were directed like this. None of them felt as epic as what Metal Gear Solid was. The, the, just the tiny little things in the game that add up to so much more. In Metal Gear Solid 2, there's a bucket of ice, and if you shoot it with a gun, the bucket will fall over and all the ice cubes will fall out individually. The ice cubes will melt, and mm -hmm. you can actually shoot each and every individual ice cube. The amount of detail in the Metal Gear games is extraordinary. It's this attention to detail in these characters that drove me forward to make me feel like I was watching this epic movie. I remember at every moment showing my dad the little things that the game would do. My dad definitely wouldn't play the game. A part of that is kind of what it is now. Uh, doing what I do for a career, my dad watches me play games. But with Metal Gear Solid, he was just as invested in the story as I was. And, and he wouldn't tell me what to do, right? He wouldn't tell me to go do something specific in the game. Every morning, um, whenever I hung out with my dad, we'd go uh, to Tim Hortons in the morning and there'd be a group of his friends there and we'd all sit there, I'd get a donut. That day, I didn't talk about the game because I didn't know if I felt comfortable talking about video games with um, adults. But my dad was, he was just telling everybody about the story. You, guys, there's this game that Shane has at home. That's a movie. It's an actual movie. And he can play actors in this movie. It kind of made me feel like more people could like video games. That definitely had to rub off on me on the way I do re-res and the way I talk about games with other people. Shane had a good job in advertising, but in 2014, he felt inspired to try something else, and he decided to make a significant change in his life. As crazy as it sounds, he wanted to be on YouTube. I was worried when he was telling me that he was wanting to get into the gaming and stuff, and I don't think you can make a living out of that, but do something with film or whatever. So when he quit his job working advertising, I was not happy. I was scared. So when you told me you quit your job, because I think you were making, wasn't it 50? You had 50,000 on all your benefits? That was 40 something. 40 something, close to 50. And that was how many years ago? That was my second job I ever got. And yeah, I had like a, that was the, a high paying career job. That was the starter. And they said there's a lot of room going up from here. And they liked him when he came home and said, you know, I don't like that, mom. I quit my job. I was not. I was scared. I was scared for you because I thought, well, what are you going to do? And he was doing the re-res, but he was only putting so much time into it because he did work full time. So it worried me. I am a huge fan of the NES. 
from way back in the day when I was a kid. This is back Shane's then, very first YouTube NES video as re around. The Atari existed and Sega did have their master Shane system. did what a lot of but YouTubers do in their first videos. He did a NES. top five favorite something console. or other. On today's episode, I'm going to be walking you through my top five NES games. But the interesting thing is, it's a, it's a very strange list. First it's a weird list. list. It's not what you think it's going to be. It's not Super Mario Brothers. It's not Zelda. It's RC Pro-Am. It's a game called Seacross, which I've never heard of before. It's Micro Machines. And his number one game of all time is, of course, Jackal. This is it. My favorite NES game ever made. The first time I did it, I got sick and I stayed at home. Maybe I'll just do top five video games I've liked on the NES and I just picked this random list. And I want to make sure I made a list that I was like, you know, maybe I'm going to be cool. I'm not going to pick Zelda and Super Mario and, you know, every other game everyone picks. So I specifically picked five games that I had in my collection because when I was younger, we didn't go out and get the brand new video games. I usually got um, games from layaway places and, and stuff like that that were just used. There are interesting bosses and great traps that seem to get me every time. I was sick at home during the very beginning, and then the next day I recorded a bit more, the next day I recorded a bit more. I, I actually get way more healthier as it goes along, but I wasn't comfortable, and you can tell that for like the first year. It's just a very uncomfortable person uh, trying their best to talk about video games. Shane has been incredibly successful on YouTube, far more successful than he ever thought he would be. Shane has over 160,000 subscribers. Shane is one of the biggest gaming-centric YouTubers in North America. And his whole identity on YouTube comes from the pile of cut-rate games he played as a kid. I honestly believe that what I do now and what I do on ReRes, even my love for video games probably wouldn't exist had it not been for the, that divorce or my parents. If my parents had stayed together, they probably would have been like any other parents and maybe just been like, yeah, here's a video game, go play it. And then I probably would have fallen out of love of video games pretty quick. Now that I'm older, I'm like, hey, divorce isn't just me. Like there's a whole bunch of other divorcee kids out there. But for me, I've seen how difficult it is for other kids to have had a really good relationship with both of their parents, especially when they've broken up. I've seen that in my own family where they don't speak to their dad anymore or their mom or vice versa. And I don't want to say Jackal is the reason why they're, they, 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 they were okay being in the same room with me. But yeah, it kind of helps to have something like that, to be there together, to, to know that I can be here with my son at the same time as my ex-wife's in the house or whatever, and it can be okay for now. This is David Hayter. David is the lead actor in the Metal Gear series. He's also a writer and producer. I'm in Cambridge, Ontario, so just outside of Toronto. Nice. David was in California when we talked to him, but he has roots in Canada, specifically in Toronto, and he gets back here fairly often. I play a ton of video games. I've played so many video games, reviewing them and, and, and doing all that stuff. Video games kind of affected my, my, my upbringing, my relationship with my, my dad and my mom. My parents broke up when I was really young, and my dad, he knew that I liked games a lot, so he got me, he tried to get, he tried to get me a video game that 
he could watch while I was playing, kind of enjoy it the same way. And the game right. he bought was Metal Gear Solid. Metal Gear. Uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It was the first time I'd ever seen a video game that treated the story like it was a real movie. Characters were important. It was also the first time in, in my um, like adolescent mind when the characters' voices were real people. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad it was a solid uh, bonding experience, no pun intended. David, were you, uh, were you an up-and-coming actor at the time? <laughs> I was... Uh, I don't know about up and coming. I was an actor. I was lounging around Hollywood, and uh, uh, yeah, I was poor and, and uh, desperate for money, and then I auditioned for it and, and got the job. And then the next year, I ended up working on X-Men, which was my big break as a writer. Uh, it all just sort of came together in 98, 99. Well, the older I get, the more I sound like Snake. Uh, anyway. um, so I'm working, I'm writing on this show uh, for Netflix, uh, Warrior Nun, and it's my first time in a writer's room, and a lot of the young writers are Metal Gear fans, so they just laugh themselves silly, because if I'm tired or something, I'd be like, Ugh. and they're like, ah, oh, Snake! That must be the best problem in the world. Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's not really, not really a problem, but, you know, if people are Metal Gear obsessed and you're trying to get work done, it's, it's, uh, it's a little distracting sometimes. It's a nice, weird little superpower to have. The first game we recorded in this weird little house uh, like a living room in Hollywood that had been converted into sort of a sound stage. They'd have like five microphones lined up, and we did the first game like that, and that was really cool. For 12 years or whatever it was, it was just the best job in the world. They'd bring in the best voice actors that ever lived to do scenes with me. It was really, really fun, the whole thing. When we were recording the first game, Konami and Kojima and everybody had made it clear that this was a big swing for the fences. It was going to be transformative in terms of cutscenes and, you know, gameplay transferring to cutscenes. So I kind of thought, I think this is going to make an impression, and I think that, you know, that this is going to be a game changer. But I did not think that I would be flying to places like Kuwait City or Dublin to meet thousands upon thousands of people that love Metal Gear 20 years later. Uh, it's kind of in limbo uh, because Kojima is gone and, and Konami has it. Konami brought me back to do can a snake cameo in Bomberman and he's coming back in Super Smash uh, Ultimate. Um, so, you know, Snake and Metal Gear definitely have a place in video game history. But will it go on for another 20 years like this? I don't know. I, I really wanted to thank you for kind of having like this significant impact on me. Uh, usually uh, the games and the story, that kind of stuff matters a lot to me, but very rarely do the voices stand out and have such an everlasting impact. I, I appreciate that so much, Shane. I, I, uh, I'm so glad that it was, you know, it was a it was a bonding experience for you and your father, and that's that's what I really love about games. You know, I get all these families and brothers and sisters and girlfriends and boyfriends, and they play it together and watch it, and, and you know, really seems to make people happy and bring them together. You know, guys, we're all in Toronto, so David, whenever you come home, and Shane, I could give you uh, the honor of a lifetime by letting you buy Solid Snake a beer. <laughs> I think that's what they call a win-win. Yeah, I'd appreciate that very much. That's it for today's episode. Thank you, Shane Lewis, for opening your home and your heart 
and for letting us all inside. The episode really just came together in the last couple of days. We worked on it for almost a year, believe it or not. It was a long journey, but boy, was it worth it. Shane, of course, is known as Rerez on YouTube. He's got two channels there, and he just launched his own podcast. It's called Hot Take, and uh, it's available on iTunes, Stitcher, and everywhere else. Special thanks also to David Hayter. David is currently working on a show for Netflix called Warrior Nun, so keep an eye open for that. Thanks also to producer Sarah Deacons, technical producer Stephen Nikolic. Music in today's episode is provided by the Free Music Archive, freemusicarchive.org. Tracks include Nomi's Theme from Sulcus, Teamwork from Scott Holmes, Fairs of State by Shaolin Dub, Night Hills by Livio Amato, Upbeat by John Luke Hefferman, Cupcake Marshall from Blue Dot Sessions. Extra special thanks to Lindsay Hodges, who took a photo of herself wearing a heavily pixelated t-shirt. So cool of her to do that. And follow Lindsay on Twitter at LindsayCon, L-A-N-D-S-I-C-O-N. We will be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.